Welcome to Park City Church. You're listening to our weekly message, where we hope you'll be inspired and encouraged to know and follow Jesus and welcome and serve others. Thank you for tuning in. It's Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Life on the road, we've been walking through Luke's gospel. Not every story or verse, kind of each week we, 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 we pick up the next chapter and try to look at a, a slightly larger uh, unit situated in its context uh, around this theme that for this section of Luke's gospel uh, is really about a journey of life on the road. He has set his face to Jerusalem, he's making his way to the cross, and he's calling people to come with him, right, and changing their lives along the way. So we've been sort of using that as a framework. What does life on the road with Jesus look like? And we've seen different things, stories of conflict and tension and healing, teaching, parables. Uh, and, and today we get this sort of uh, imagery and language that if you've been around church, you've heard it before, take up your cross, you know, really appropriate for Father's Day, unless you hate your father and mother and, you know, siblings and wife, uh, you know, this, this sort of strong language here. But then he picks up the imagery of it, like finishing a project, uh, building a tower. Uh, discipleship with me, he says, like apprenticing your life to me and, and following me, allowing me to lead and shape uh, you. Uh, he says, comes with some like cost. And so he's just right up front here. Let's consider it. Um, and and uh, I'm just going to be right up front with you this morning. This is what this is where uh, we're headed. All right. So if I had to sum up uh, uh, what we are going to consider from our text this morning in a sentence, it would be this: right, uh, that the call of discipleship to Jesus. All right, that his invitation to discipleship, the call of discipleship, as we find it in this passage, is a gracious invita- invitation. A gracious invitation to throw your lot in with Jesus. And, and no one else, right, or nothing else, all right, so, so kind of the central theme of the morning, that the thought this morning is that the invitation to discipleship with Jesus is a gracious invitation to throw your lot in with him and with no one or nothing else, and we, we won't, we'll take each turn of that phrase, not, not in the order in which it was given, uh, but we'll start with sort of the meat right in the middle, to throw your lot in with Jesus, to just sort of chips on the table, all right, uh, I'm going in here, I'm throwing my lot in with Jesus. This, I think, is language, uh, it's a, a point in the gospel that makes, it makes a bit of sense to us. It's interesting to me where the story starts. Uh, Luke tells us, we're told that large crowds accompanied him along the road, right? Like as he's making this journey, at this moment in the journey, large crowds uh, are, are accompanying him. 
And, and I think we sit with this phrase. I mean, this makes sense. There's something appealing. Just within the story of the gospel, of Luke's gospel, there's something appealing about the man, right? Something about the person and work of Jesus that has drawn people into the story for all kinds of reasons. Obviously, there's been tension and friction, and some people have rejected him, but, but in the story of Luke's gospel, I mean, uh, people are drawn to, uh, all walks of life, people drawn to, uh, to, to Jesus, to his message, to the work that he's done. Uh, there's something appealing about him uh, uh, that has pulled people in. And that's true even today, I think. Maybe true for you, right? I don't know where your uh, sort of walk of faith might be, but there's probably something at least that has sort of drawn you into orbit around uh, the person and work of Jesus, right? Uh, you read Luke's gospel, he can, he can attract a crowd, right? Like, uh, I mean, he's healing people, he's feeding people, he's... Uh, restoring people who are broken, and people are drawn into it. They're caught up in what is going on. Large crowds, Luke tells us, are following him. I wonder, if, I mean, that's got to be a bit of what's behind the, like, sort of culturally, even culturally speaking, this, this uh, feeling, you know, well, give me Jesus, but not the church, right? This kind of, uh, you know, religion, maybe no, but there is something about the message and person of Jesus uh, that, that, that draws people in. Something about, something attractive about sort of throwing your lot in with him. And maybe that's you, right? You're kind of somewhere in orbit around him. This is great, right? You're like, this makes sense. This is inviting and uh, beautiful. You're like, yes, yes, this, this. And then Jesus uh, does what he so often does, right? This sounds great. But then he, then he shifts gears to something slightly less palatable, if you will right? Large crowds have gathered around him, and he turns to them and says, throw your lot in with me, uh, but then uh, let, me, let, me, let me clarify that, with me and no one or nothing else, right? We hear the verses that, I mean, the language, uh, it, it's, it's abrasive, right? Hate father, mother, all these relationships, these networks of security in that culture, even still, right? These are the things that made for the security of your life, these relationships. Uh, hate father, mother, take up your cross, right? Take up your own cross. Even your own life, got to be able sort of to relinquish hate in this language here, your own life. And then these mini parables, right? Kind of these brief examples, building a tower, uh, uh, you know, uh, going into battle, uh, that you, you consider these costs. There's a lot, a lot wrapped up in, in what Jesus says here, and we won't consider all of it, but perhaps a couple of things that I maybe need attention or might warrant uh, further reflection. One is the word hate, right? I think we know, uh, I mean, some of us are like, finally, an excuse to cut out the members of my family I've been, like, resisting all of my life, right? Uh, you know, like, uh, maybe on a day, like today, uh, when examples of fatherhood are, are broken and fractured, you're like, sweet, right? I have biblical uh, warrant for my reaction, like all, all these things we carry. But, but, you know, again, if we hold, as, as we do approach Scripture, we hold it in context, and elsewhere, Jesus will rebuke religious leaders who are, are telling the people they can sort of throw off their responsibility to their aging parents in the name of, like, religious commitment, right? So he rebukes them for that. So this can't mean just, like, uh, all right, you know, so long, families, I don't have to pay attention to you because I'm, I'm um, all in with Jesus, right? There must be some sort of, like, nuance 
uh, here. And, and, and we know this, like we, we, we feel it. Um, I, I think, and, and again, uh, you know, people smarter than me have sort of stepped into the, the usage of words and, and all that here, but uh, there is this sense in which I think the way in which we're meant to hold it, it's, 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 a, it's a language of intensity, right? The hate in this sense would mean like love less. You have to love everything else less than your love for me, if, if, if we could use some imagery here, it would be something like the intensity of your love, uh, your devotion to me, Jesus will say, uh, will have to burn brighter than any other sort of flame in your life. Or, or even maybe to nuance it even further, that in comparison to your devotion to me, right, if you were to hold all the other loves in your life a, a, alongside your devotion to me, they will look like hate because the extent of your love for me is, uh, burns so in, intense. This is kind of the imagery here, right? That Jesus is saying that in the midst of all these networks of security in your life and the families and relationships around you and, and whatever you perceive in your own life, uh, the way in which you rely and sort of throw your lot in with all those things, he said that, uh, all of that has to, um, will reach an end. You, you'll have to come to the end of that and uh, your love for me will have, if you're going to be my disciple, will have to burn brighter than those things. And then he finishes, we didn't read it, but he finishes with this imagery of salt. Uh, you know, he kind of says to them in this moment, look, you know, just if you don't do that, a kind of discipleship that sort of, you know, I don't know, just doesn't buy into this approach, Jesus says. It's like salt that's lost its, like, flavor, its saltiness. It's just useless. Useless. And, and, and in this moment, uh, in fact, some New Testament scholars think that Jesus is even speaking specifically to the people of Israel, his people who'd been called to sort of uh, follow the plan of God for the world, and they'd kind of, they're losing sight of it, and they're not coming around Jesus in the way that uh, they'd been called to do, and so they're losing their effectiveness as God's uh, uh, expression of goodness to the world. Uh, but in this moment, Jesus is saying there is, there is a cost here. Your love for me, he says, will have to burn brighter than all other loves. Uh, it's been a, a minute, but I was revisiting um, a book by, uh, she's, uh, I believe she's from Kansas City or lives here, Candace Millard, uh, a, a journalist and author who's uh, written some, some really fun works that are worth your attention, but one of them is called The Destiny of the Republic, and it's the story of uh, President Garfield. Uh, James uh, Garfield, and uh, a remarkable story. It's worth your attention. Like, uh, just beautifully written, and uh, I mean, the, the the convergence of things in history around his assassination uh, was remarkable. But uh, so, so she it tells the story. You know, of Garfield is this kind of reluctant. Uh, leader, reluctant president, right? The, the, the story surrounds sort of when he was nominated even, like verbalizing, wait, 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 like I did not put my name in this kind of sentiment, right? Like uh, this is, uh, he was sort of pushed forward by others. Um, one who, again, sort of, you know, 20 years after, nearly 20 years after the the events that we commemorate today, that are remembered today, the emancipation, the end of, uh, of slavery, uh, ultimately in, in, in Texas, right, that Garfield would pick up those themes and uh, would continue to contend for equality and dignity of his uh, uh, brothers and sisters. And uh, uh, interestingly, so as she tells the story of Millard, he says this interesting thing, uh, as Millard tells the story of Garfield, uh, about sort of as he's pulled into uh, 
these new responsibilities and the things that he carries, the things that he fights for and wants to lead the country uh, toward. Uh, that, that in the course of sort of his political career, talked about him being a very sort of gracious and forgiving person. That uh, at a time when sort of political divisiveness, like, could it be any worse than now? Well, I mean, you read the book, you're like, oh my goodness, right? Like, it just was nuts, sort of all the scheming and, and, and all that was going on, that, that he had an inability to kind of hold a grudge. Like, he could meet someone who had just volatilely, like, come at him previously or behind his back, and he would just, it was almost as if it didn't happen, he would meet them graciously. In fact, it's admitted, admittedly, you know, said that in, in the political context, right, I know that the ease with which I forgive is regarded as weakness, right? But he didn't even try to change it. It says, in fact, I am a poor hater, right? So already sort of buying into values that maybe aren't sort of the definition of the norm in the context in which he's in. And then, the, and then this sort of correspondence prior to stepping into the responsibility of uh, leadership tonight, he says, I'm a private citizen. Tomorrow, I'll be called to assume new responsibilities. And on the day after, the broadside of the world's wrath will strike me, and it will strike hard. I know it. Right? I hear in this, I thought of, I thought of this moment when, when, when you hear Jesus' instructions, right? Similarly, one who, uh, the way in which he moves throughout the world, not sort of uh, the way in which the world seems to want to work. Uh, and Jesus saying, if you're going to walk with me in this world and follow sort of my uh, way of life in this world, he says, you're going to have to count the cost. And you get the feeling, I thought of this moment in Garfield's life where the sense where he's kind of going in, eyes open, right, clear-eyed about what this will mean. Not knowing the extent uh, of the way in which the hatred of the world will come at him, but uh, sort of, uh, I mean, it, no disillusions about what's expected. And you can feel that movement from Jesus. I think sometimes I read this passage or I hear a passage like this, and, and I, I hear it like, uh, uh, it was Adam Sandler's got like a new sports movie out, I think. He's kind of making the rounds. There's a clip where he's like, you know, he's taking some raw talent off the streets of Spain, I think, and he's trying to turn him into a refined sort of NBA-level uh, player. And there's the scene, I think, where he's like, you know, do you believe or do you, how bad do you want it, right? You, you know, the people around you and no one's giving it to you. And that, that feeling, that's that trope that's in probably every sports movie, right? You, you, where's your moxie, right? You got to dig deep. I, I hear that kind of tone a lot of times when I read passages like this. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple, right? You got to want it bad enough, right? You got to dig deep, right? Uh, you know, w w this is a test of your discipleship moxie. But I wonder, I wonder if that's hearing it sort of the wrong tone. I wonder if it's not just a statement of fact. If Jesus isn't just telling this large crowd who've experienced his goodness and his grace, who have heard his message, if Jesus isn't just telling them plainly, this is where following someone who personifies love for enemies always ends. Death. You gotta be ready to let go of everything else because if you're gonna follow someone like me, if you're gonna follow someone who personifies, who is himself love for enemies, it doesn't go anywhere successful. Right, if it's just a statement of fact, literally Jesus saying, look, I'm, this is where the story goes. And if you want to come with me, I just want you to know it up front. Which raises the question, how is this good news, <laughs> right? 
right? Like, like what about this? So, so we've, we've, we've considered the bit like, you know, let's throw our lot in with Jesus. Yeah, right? But then wait a minute, you know, and, and with no one or nothing else. Okay, ugh, I don't know, right? But, but where is the gracious invitation in this call from Jesus? Where, where is the good news of the gospel in this move? I mean, this sounds to me, Right, this sounds to me like a passage for like super Christians, right? I mean, this is for the elite. This is the NBA level Christian we're talking about here, right? Um, I've recently been reading, I just started a little book called, uh, it's like Vintage Saints and Sinners or Sinners and Saints. And it's a story of 25 kind of uh, heroes of the faith that sort of looks at them as sort of a a more, I don't know, well-rounded sort of perspective on on their life is the attempt, I think. But man, I, I don't know. I read stories like theirs and this passage, and I'm like, this feels like this feels like a passage for super saints, right? I mean, heroes, uh, guys like you know, desert fathers. Earlier in church history, I think Starlight was one guy's name that like, climbing pillars in the desert and wrestling the devil, right? Uh, stories like that, or, or Mother Teresa in Calcutta. This is for the Bonhoeffers and the Lewises, right? I mean, this. This is stuff for really just the cream of, of the crop. What's it got to do with me, you? What's, what's a passage like this mean in the mundane sort of routine of my life in Overland Park where I'm in the grind of a thankless job, where I'm trying to make a difference in my job, but I have trouble seeing any, where I'm a small cog in a really, really big machine, where no one else kind of seems to care about the values of this place and system. Why sh- should I? When I'm in retirement and culture says I've sort of paid my dues and, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus in that space? In the routine of diapers and daycares and budgets, school loans and sleepless nights. Right? What, what does it mean in the face of health scares and broken relationships and healthy relationships, this network of support in my life? What's it mean for me to follow Jesus, to hear this message? Right? If, if this is just for sort of super Christians, what's it look like in my routine life? I think to help us with this, I'm going to take you somewhere I have lived a good portion of my life recently, and that's with Bluey. Any, anybody know Bluey, right? Woo! People are like, what is he talking about? Uh, so Bluey is this cartoon that was created by an Australian, uh, I think his name is uh, Blum or, or Brum. Uh, so, Apologies for not knowing that offhand, but uh, but he he uh, is this sort of beautiful story about uh, a family of blue healer dogs in Australia. The accent alone is enough to kind of pull you in and uh, just enjoy it, right? Um, but uh, he, he said he said that he wanted to create like uh, he, he wanted like Peppa Pig for Australia, right? And uh, but, but uh, in recent sort of chat, I mean, if you haven't watched it, it's beautifully done. It's so fun, right? It's a mom and dad and two little girls, and it's full of imagination and play. You should watch it. Kids or no, check it out and enjoy it. Uh, regardless of what I'm about to say next, you should enjoy it. But uh, this, this uh, one gentleman sort of edi- ed- editorial writing about this, uh, it was just described as the, it's become the Bible for modern parenting. And made the observation, right? So you got these parents and these kids, and it's beautiful, and they're having so much fun. But it's like anytime you hear this is the Bible, you know, for, you can immediately think like, uh, you know, one word we use was law. I mean, this is sort of this is the standard, and you got to live up to this, right? The culturally, that's how we perceive. When we use a phrase like, you know, the Bible of, it has this kind of negative connotation of like, this is the, uh, this is the, the, the rule, right? And anything short of this, right? Come on, just letting yourself and everyone else down. 
And this writer says, you know, Bluey, which if you've watched it, you felt it, right? I've been watching on the couch with my kids, and the dad is doing incredible things. And I look over the top of the heads of my twin daughters who are nine, and I look at Jess, I'm like, I'm never going to live up to this, right, ever. Um, this author's, you know, Bluey's dad seems to exist to give parents another reason to lose sleep. Bandit is his name, the, the, the father. Uh, always plays the right games and always plays them right. He invests in his daughter's dreamed-up scenarios without stinting or sighing or checking the time or his phone. Yeah, right, who does that? He has neat, apt truisms, and he's ready to just kind of offer them at the exactly the right moments. He's funny, he's creative. The uh, creator of the show said, uh, you know, he wanted Peppa Pig, but he didn't want Peppa Pig's dad. He was kind of, I, I was in a Pe Peppa Pig sort of generation, but I understand he was sort of, maybe the bar was lower, right? Uh, he's like, he wanted something else. And he debated not including him because he knew, right? He, he, he knew there would be this sense of like, this sort of superiority kind of feeling that, that uh, he's like, you know, I don't know what else to do except go on tour and say, you don't have to be like that, right? But, but it's like, it's just funnier with him in the show. But again, this author sort of writing about it, you know, this is the standard of fatherhood and parenting. Bandit, he says, is heaven to his own kids. And so in the eyes of many parents that I know, he is hell. <laughs> right, this, this beautiful standard of perfection. And you're like, oh man, yes, it's lovely. I may or may not have shed a tear at an episode of Bluey, right? Because it's beautiful, but it's also a reminder of a standard of perfection that I know I, I will never live up to. And I, I wonder, I wonder if there's not some of that in this moment. Like, where's the grace in Jesus' call to take up your cross and follow him? Interestingly, in the story of Jesus' life in Luke's gospel, as he moves closer and closer to the end of that road, the destination, the numbers around him get smaller and smaller and smaller until he takes up a cross by himself. That, that even within the story of the gospel, no one's up to the task. Right, that when it comes right down to it, right, he, he, he carries the cross. And it's not until the other side of his work, the other side of the cross and the resurrection, that we read stories of disciples who had blown it, betrayed, rejected, walked away in confusion and fear and loss, right? Who had not sort of done the exact thing he's called them to do here. It's not until the other side of his work on their behalf that we read stories, remarkable stories of disciples valuing, uh, valuing their proximity to Jesus more than anything else. I think that's the grace of this passage, that Jesus continues to the cross and continues to extend an invitation to you and me to follow him there, despite our repeated failures. That, that, that he bears up under that weight of discipleship, right? That, that he is the one who works life uh, so that we can follow him now, even in our brokenness. It's this, do you hear the difference? It's not a like, let's, let's find that discipleship moxie and just, you know, dig deep. And it's, it's none of that. It's, no, you can do this because I have already done it for you. It's not, do you want it bad enough? It's, I have done it for you here. This is yours. Throw your lot in with me, Jesus says. You're going to throw it in somewhere. 
and all of those other things will inevitably crack under the pressure because nothing can live under the weight of that kind of perfection. Whatever that definition is for you of what the sort of perfect picture of life might be, you know, uh, bandit, bluey, none of them are going to, it's just, life is going to crack under the pressure. Jesus says, throw your lot in with me because I, I have already We got stand with you. Thank you for listening to the Park City Church podcast. To learn more about our church and or to find ways to get involved in our community, visit us at parkcitykc.com or follow us on social media at parkcitykc.com.